Good morning, everyone. It is so lovely to be with you today. If you don't know me, I'm the Reverend Mary Lesman, and I'm feeling in for our fearless leader because he was at something in Atlanta. Conference, meeting, I don't know. But he's coming back today, so he'll be back with us. But he was not here this morning. And so its I think this is the first time this year I've been with you. So it's lovely to be back with you. Um, so my understanding is my assignment for today to discuss with you guys is we begin at chapter 20, verse 14 of Genesis, and then go through chapter 21. And then he, I really was, I really, if it had been a week later, it would have been so great, because next week is the sacrifice of Isaac. So, but he'll, he'll be back to do that with you. Ah, it's such a good, I might, if I can, I might come and sit in and just listen. It was so fun. Um, but, okay, so let's chat a little about, I'm going to read the section that we're going to start talking about. Uh, chapter 20, verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech, come on in, sweetheart, don't worry. Abimelech said, my land is before you, settle where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, look, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is your exoneration before all who are with me. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay, so we're just getting the tail end of this. I don't know how much he talked to you about all of this last week, but... Um, Abraham's being Abraham again. So um, we're coming off this story. This, this is the tail end of a story where Abraham is not behaving with integrity. And he's done that before. It's similar to an earlier story that we heard um, about Abraham being dishonest about his relationship with Sarah and then what he subjected her to because he was not willing to be honest about their relationship. In this case... Abimelech and his kin seem to have a stronger moral compass than Abraham, right? And um, God intervenes again and speaks directly to Abimelech and helps clean up the mess that Abraham has caused, right? So note that God speaks to whoever God chooses. Abimelech is not a God worshiper, right? So God speaks to whoever he chooses. He doesn't limit himself to people who profess certain things about him, right? All of us, all of God's creatures and creation are subject to God and are available for his purposes, and he uses all of them. And it's a good lesson for us because sometimes we think that we can only hear or learn things that are worthwhile from people who profess things a certain way that we want them to profess. And I think sometimes we learn our most meaningful lessons from people who think very differently from us and profess things very different from us, but there's something truth that they've revealed to us that is consistent with God, right? And so we have to be, we have to not blinder ourselves where God would not have us wear blinders, right? Um, And the, the, kind of the corollary of that is all of us are subject to God, whether we profess that or not. So God had gone in and closed up the wombs of all the chicks in Abimelech's household while this whole thing was going on, right? And then he reopens them again. So even though Abimelech's kind of like, dude, I have no relationship with you. I don't worship you. I don't do anything. Doesn't mean God didn't step in and do what he wants with all of us, right? So there's a corollary both ways. 
Okay, so don't you love that Abraham tries to get off on a technicality? This is actually just before the passage I read for y'all today that's officially done, but this is so great. We got to talk about it. Well, yes, he says, she's my wife, but she's also my sister. We have the same father. So I wasn't really lying when I said she was my sister, but I just didn't tell you that she's not my wife as well. Okay, so we'll start by trying not to be overly appalled that Abraham and Sarah are half-siblings, and yet they're married. So it goes back to the age-old question, you know, who did Cain marry, and who did, right? It's like, um, where did the chick come from? Like, it, and so, so you don't want to pull that thread too much because it just gets into lots of areas that are very uncomfortable. And so the same thing we're going to say, there weren't a lot of folks roaming the earth at this point, and so... You kind of took what you could get, right? So they're, they're half-siblings, and they've married each other. And, and you stayed in your clan, right? You stayed with the pe people that you knew. And so you actually very often were being set up with people that were not too far back on the whole family tree thing, you know, from you. So, um, so that was not uncommon. And God works through all of it to bring about his purposes. It's okay. Um, and, and, you know, keep in mind, the whole lineage of the Christian family flows from this. So... <laughs> So we go all the way back to half-siblings who were married. So any of us who want to put our nose in the air as Christians, you know, we should kind of, we might want to double-check that um, instinct, right? Okay, so we're going to wrap up that little section there with, once again, that kind of parallel story with Abraham not behaving well and um, God stepping in to kind of clean up the situation. And so we wrap up that section and we get into chapter 21. So Sarah is finally, finally, finally getting her baby. Oh my gosh, how long have we been looking for Sarah to get her baby? Okay, so before we dive into all of that, I want to recap how the promise of God kind of gradually unfolded over this period. So um, first... God calls Abraham out of Ur, and he tells him that he will make a great nation of him. So that's all the way back in chapter 12, where we start the Abraham um, section of Genesis, right? So God calls him, he says he's going to make a nation out of him, that his descendants will be numerous, right? Well, so if he's going to make a nation out of him, and his descendants are going to be numerous, he's going to have to have a kid, right? That's, that's going to be part of this, right? So years pass. And God comes to Abram in a vision. And Abram challenges God on the whole lots of descendants promises. Okay, I wanted to read you this. So I'm going to I'm going to go back to 15. So now we've gone from chapter 12 to chapter 15 and I'm going to read you uh, 1 to 6. After these things, which is so interesting, that's entry words that they use in the Bible a lot, a lot in Genesis, after these things, and it's kind of like, that's just kind of saying, at some point in time, which is not, doesn't help us, right, doesn't nail anything down. So, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? which is kind of bold, don't you think, like to God? What are you going to give me, God? Okay, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, or Abram said, you have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. 
He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So first we get the promise that you're going to have a great nation and Abram goes for a while and then um, Abram wants more details. He's like, God, unfold this promise for me a little more. And God says, oh, okay, well, I'm willing to tell you now. They are going to be your own issue. They're not going to be a child out of your household that didn't come from you, right? And you're, they're going to be numerous as the stars in the sky. So that's the second um, kind of unfolding of the promise. And more years pass, and Sarah has still not born a child. And so Sarah takes things into her own hands. And so now we're at chapter 16, and I'm going to read you 1 through 4. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, You see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That's kind of interesting, huh? You see that the Lord has prevented me from, mm -mm -mm, isn't that interesting? Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, um, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. Okay, so... There's lack of patience here. There's lack of trust and that God has the long game going, right? So God's looking at the long game and Sarah's getting antsy. And so she says, hey, let's just help God along here and we're gonna um, have Hagar bury you a child. And so she does. And so that's kind of how it's been unfolding. And finally, finally, God promises in chapter 17 that Abraham will have a son with Sarah. So now we're gonna do 17, 15 to 19. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will give rise to nation. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Okay, so now we've got more unfolding of the details of the promise. At first, it's just you're going to have a great nation. Then it's going to come out of your issue. And now he's saying, mm -mm, it's not through your slave girl. It is through Sarah, right? You're going to have this child through Sarah. So here in chapter 21, we're finally getting to the fulfillment of that promise of Sarah having a child herself. So Sarah, of course, is overjoyed that she's finally able to bear a son for Abraham. The son is born, and he's circumcised according to God's instructions. So if you go back and keep reading in chapter 17 where I just said you're going to have a child with Sarah, God goes on then to say, and this is what you're going to do. On the eighth day, you're going to circumscribe him. La, 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 la. It gives him all this stuff, right? So according to the instructions that God gave them back in 17, they follow all of that when Isaac is born. And then when he is weaned, they have this big celebration. So I wonder if that's still, how old? I have no idea. Has Chris thrown that out? I have no idea how old children were when they were weaned. I'm thinking you probably kept nursing them for a lot longer than we do because you had the time and, you know, cuts down on food and all the other stuff, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they probably did it. The child was probably older when they weaned, but, you know, what are we thinking, four, five? I have no idea, right? <laughs> no. I mean, they could have used pouches, right? 
you know, um, made out of skin and, you know, cut a tip and let them suck through, right? So I'm, I'm sure they had something that they used. But, but yeah, but I would think the most cost-effective and why not, you know, pretty much your days are spent surviving. That's what your days are, right? You're not, you don't, you're not working for, you know, a corporate a 500 company and having to like use the special room or anything, right? You're, you're, so anyway, so I would think you do it for a long time. But at some point, but I digress. So at some point you wean the child, right? And they have this big celebration. So Sarah's in the midst of this celebration and she kind of finds it impossible to be completely happy as long as Hagar and Ishmael are around. And she kind of sees them as a threat. And there's this line here that says, verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. And so then she turns to Abraham and says, cast cast them out, right? And so there's something about seeing him. Now, that's the NRSV translation. I'm not sure which translation is in the study guide, but it said laughing, which is an interesting translation. So instead of playing with it, it says laughing. And that's kind of interesting because you kind of juxtapose that against the fact that Abram laughed when God said he was going to have a child, and then Sarah really laughed when God said she was going to have a child, and then here she now is kind of turning that around and laughing as she has this child that had been promised her and is celebrating him being weaned, and then we have this other child of Abraham's that's laughing with her child, and she's that, that kind of puts her over the edge, right? So she sees them in, as a threat. Apparently, she was able to stomach their presence when it was just her. So we had that whole earlier scene where Hagar was sent out when she was pregnant. You know, this is um, because right away after she conceives from Abraham, we get Sarah saying that she despised her, right? That Hagar um, kind of had this attitude then with Sarah. And Sarah's like, how can you let a maidservant treat me like this? And he's like, she's your maidservant. I ain't got nothing to do with this. You, you deal with it. And so they send her out. So she's pregnant and they send her out. And then God speaks to her and tells her to go back and submit to Sarah and be part of that. So we're going to talk about the time frame in a while, but it's been a while. And so Hagar has been back with Sarah in this kind of uncomfortable relationship all this time. So apparently Sarah's able to handle it when it's just her. But now that Isaac is here, looks like her fierce mama bear side comes out. And she doesn't want Ishmael to inherit as, as her son will. And she doesn't want, even, even if Abraham and God assure her that the promise is going to come through Isaac and that he's going to be the one um, that God's going to work through for this nation. She doesn't want anything that's going to muddy the claims on who Abraham's true heir is and through whom the promises of God will be fulfilled. So she just wants him out of the scene. So think about all the stories you've heard about in Greek tragedies, in medieval times, where the one who was in line to ascend to power just ends up taking out all the cousins and the siblings because they're like, you know, let's just neaten this up and not have anybody who can claim the throne that's not, you know, three generations removed from me, right? So, so there, this is not a new thing, right? This kind of getting rid of folks to try and protect your own um, place. So Sarah tells Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael away, and we're told that the matter was very distressing to Abraham. 
And he, of course, loves his son Ishmael. Um, and so, yes, it's become very complicated with these two women who don't get along, but Ishmael is his son, right? And more than this, he's Abraham's firstborn son, which again is probably part of the reason Sarah wants him out of there. It's like, I don't want a firstborn around. I want my son to be known as your real firstborn son, kind of. So Abraham's distressed about this situation. God appears to Abraham and tells him not to be distressed. He then says something that every Christian wife should quote to their husband on a regular basis. Okay, that's 2112. Everybody should read this. And God said, I'm still looking for it. There it is. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Don't you love that? Because we get that whole, people love to use that verse in Paul about a wife submit to your husbands, right? Nobody pulls out God telling Abraham, whatever Sarah tells you, you do it. So just want that. You might want to put that on your refrigerator or your bathroom mirror or something. Genesis 21, 12. Okay. Okay. So let me read um, 12 and 13 here. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. I think that's it. So that's where I want to stop. Okay, so, um, no, let me, I want to do 13. Sorry, sorry, still going. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. So he kind of reassures Abraham, yes, you can cast her out like um, Sarah is asking you to do, which that can be a whole nother conversation about the character of God and his kind of agreeing to all of this, right? But he says, if what you're worried about is what's going to happen to him, don't because he's also going to have a nation um, from him as part of my relationship with you. He's your child, and there's going to be a great nation from him as well. So, Okay, so knowing that Ishmael will be under God's care, Abraham loads Hagar up with food and water, and she sends her with Ishmael into the desert. And so I want to, I want to say something here I have, actually have it later in my notes, but I think it's important for you to visualize it. So visualize weaning Isaac, and we're thinking maybe four or five, right? However long they might have um, breastfed. And there is a 14-year difference. between. If you go by what they tell us, there's a 14-year difference between the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac. So that's a whole different picture, isn't it? When you're visualizing a 14-year-old boy well, that would have been as an infant, right? So now you're talking 17, 18-year-old young man playing with this child that now Sarah is saying to send out. Now, we know this, the, the stats in all of, especially the Old Testament, and especially in Genesis, these most ancient stories that we have of our faith, you know, we can't be hanging our hats on the years that they tell us. But what we're told is that Abraham was 86 when he had um, Ishmael, and we're told that he was 100 when he had Isaac. So there's a 14-year gap there. So kind of picture that change in, in age we're talking about. So here's what I want to talk a little bit about. Back in 16, I referenced earlier that Sarah had him cast out, well, 
Abraham gave Sarah permission to send Hagar away when she was pregnant because she said, she's looking with contempt on me. Why would you let someone do this? And he's like, you take care of it, right? So that story is written by the Yahwehist or the J, what we know as the J writer. And the story that we're hearing today is written by the Eloist writer or the E writer. So I want to digress a little, and I don't know how much um, Chris has talked about uh, source um, criticism, but there are different writers that we can identify from the way that they write and from what their emphasis is that all of their, that their stories got mishmashed into Genesis. And so the blessing is in that is that there wasn't a committee somewhere along the way that said, hey, we're starting to actually put these stories together as a way to let our people know our history and where we come from and kind of own who they are, right? So hundreds and hundreds, centuries later, they're starting to do that. And they're going back to these oral stories that they've heard. And instead of kind of saying, ooh, there's this story and there's that story, and they're really about the same thing. Let's pick a winner and go with that story and then get rid of the other because we don't want to muddy the water. We want people to understand the right thing. And it might be confusing if we have different stories that say different things. And the blessing of the early redactors of scripture is that they said, no, we're going to leave it all in there. So you're going to read one story here and you're going to read one story there and you're going to go, wait a minute, in that story it said this and in this story it says this and how can that be, right? It's because they'd rather give you everything and let you struggle with it than to cut off any of what had been passed down to them through all this time, right? Which is lovely. And the best example of that is Genesis 1 and 2. You have a creation story in Genesis 1. You have a very different creation story in Genesis 2. They both talk about how God's world came about, right? And yet, um, over the years, we've just kind of melded them together, details from both of them together, because we've heard both of them so much. But we would be so much um, less enriched if they had said, uh-uh, we got to go with one creation story, and we're going to jettison the other, because we don't want to confuse things, and we don't want people questioning the validity of this, right? Um, so it's a gift, right? So we have these two stories. We have this Yahweh story in 16 about casting Hagar out, and we have this Eloah story in 21. So I want to say a little about both of those. So the Yahwist, or the J writer, he dates to approximately 950 BCE. So we're talking late United Kingdom kind of time. David, Solomon, right before things are going to start getting ugly. This writer is believed to be from the southern kingdom, so from the southern tribes. He emphasizes an anthropomorphic God. So he emphasizes God showing up and talking to people. And so think about God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Very anthropomorphic. Those are the kind of scenes that this writer likes. And he also emphasizes Abraham um, and is focused on the themes of promise and fulfillment. So if we went through all of Genesis and carved it up for you and marked which, which sections were J, which were E, then you've got the priestly writer that comes in, then you have the Deuteronomic, although I don't think what Deuteronomic shows up in Genesis. But So you've got other writers too. If we went in and like color-coded and marked it all for you and you just read the red parts that are the Eloist or the green parts um, that are the Yahwehist, you would really get a sense for how they understand God in their own way, and yet we're blessed to have all of them because it makes our understanding of God so much more layered and complex, right? 
Um, and so he's th that the, the J writer or the Yahwehist kind of focuses on these themes of promise and fulfillment, and he's somewhat more universalist in his outlook. He keeps reminding us that God is God of all, and even though he's chosen folks um, through which he's gonna make himself known, the Yahwehist never forgets that the purpose is to bless all of God's creation, not just to bless that particular people, right? So then you have the Eloist or the E writer, and he dates to approximately 850 BCE. So he's a little more recent than the Yahwehist. The Yahwehist is the most ancient writer. This writer is believed to come from the Northern Kingdom versus the Southern, and he emphasizes God revealing himself through dreams. So Jacob having the dream where he sleeps on the rock and he sees the ladder coming down and going up. Those are kind of things that the Eloist writer writes. He emphasizes Jacob and he's more focused on the problem of guilt and, and innocence. And he likes to emphasize the fear of God, the proper fear of God, people having that proper kind of thing. So just as we've had these parallel stories of Abraham allowing his wife Sarah to be taken into um, another man's home, and we have these parallel stories of God explaining the covenant to Abraham, where he explains it one way and then he comes back later and explains it another way, and they kind of have different ceremonial around how both of those are done. So we have parallel stories of Hagar and Ishmael being sent away. The J writer, the Yahwehist, wrote the Hagar-Ishmael story of 16, and the E one wrote the one of 21. So, um, so co some compare and contrast here. Abram is 86 years old when Ishmael is born. We're told that in scripture. It's like we don't even have to do the math from something else. It says, it says Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And then it tells us, again, we don't have to do the math. Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born. So there's a 14-year difference between the boys. So our story today of Hagar and Ishmael being sent out seems a little off because a boy who was at least 14 and very easily could have been 18 or more, he would be a man, right? And so you almost would envision him caring for Hagar as they go out versus Hagar being worried about caring for him. And so we have this interesting passage in this story now that Hagar are out, have they been sent out? And you have this interesting passage that Hagar lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and called out to Hagar. And isn't that interesting that she's the one that lifts her voice and weeps, but what we're told is that God heard his voice. And then that's when he calls out to Hagar. And Ishmael means God hears. That's what his name means. So we know Isaac means laughter, right? And this is um, God hears. Okay, so, you know, then we've got the whole um, Hagar saw that the water was there and um, she was able to go and, and let her boy drink and she drank and da-da-da. So again, this whole line where she says she set him under kind of a bush and then sat apart from him because she didn't want to have to watch him die, that's a story about a much younger child, right? The math doesn't work out. It, it, it's just, um, and, and which is another reason why we know it's kind of a parallel story with the earlier one when she was pregnant. It really is about both of them were set when when Isaac should have been, I mean, when Ishmael should have been younger, or in the first case, not even born yet, right? So, okay, so was water there already and Hagar couldn't just see it? Did it just show up when God um, told her about it? So 
the, the little aside point I wanna make there is that sometimes God's provided a way forward for us. He's provided a solution for us, but we're unable to see it. And so it's a reminder for us to listen and to look for God all around us so that we might find the salvation that he's already prepared for us, right? Sometimes we have a vision of what it's supposed to look like, and so we kind of have blinders on, and we're looking for salvation to come in a certain guise. And what we have to understand is God is not always gonna deal with us the way we're expecting him or hoping that he is, but he is with us, and he is dealing with us. So we have to broaden our sights of what we're looking for from God so that we can see it. While the two accounts of Hagar and Ishmael being cast out differ as to details and to timing, what is consistent in the stories is that God assures both Abraham and Hagar that he plans to build a nation from Ishmael, just as he's also going to build a nation from Abraham's son Isaac. And they agree that the descendants of Ishmael are desert people. So the whole point of sending them out into the desert and doing these desert stories, it goes back to, and I'm sure Chris and you have talked about this already, is that a lot of these stories that that are in the earliest scripture are Israel looking back But what they're doing is they're looking around at the people that are right around them right now, the Philistines and the Moabites, all the people that cause them the most trouble, their neighbors that are right around them, that they're always having skirmishes with or, or, you know, disagreements with or whatever. They read them back into scripture, into these deeper stories. And so you get all of these origin stories about why our relationship with so-and-so is a certain way and why the Edomites do this and da-da-da-da-da-da. So it's all based really about what they know of those peoples at, during the you know, um, separated kingdoms or the United Kingdom. It's not at this time, but they read it back in there, right? And so these stories set up the Ishmaelites as a desert people, which is what they were. Um, So let's talk about the Ishmaelites a little, because I looked them up. So Western Arabia Arabs are said to have been descended from Ishmael. So when I looked it up, they actually gave me three lines of Arab ancestry. And this is the third line, and these are the ones that trace themselves all the way back to Ishmael. And so we're talking about the Arabian Peninsula, subcontinent of Asia, that area, right? Ishmael's descendants are listed in Genesis 25, and there's 12 tribes for Ishmael, just like there are 12 tribes for Isaac, which is kind of interesting, right? And it's held that his descendants hold that Ishmael was the first person to speak pure Arabic. I don't know what that really means other than maybe they had a mishmash of languages going on and they're kind of pushing back to Ishmael that he's the one that kind of united us under one language that became Arabic, right? And he was the first one to to speak it the way that we still speak it today is kind of what they're saying. So in scripture, the Midianites who were located east of the Jordan River, east of the Jordan River, I'm doing it opposite to you guys, right? Are associated with the Ishmaelites. They were a desert people as indicated in both of these Genesis accounts. And the blessing of God in chapter 16. So if you go back to when he tells Hagar, go back to Sarah and submit yourself to her. He also kind of says this blessing over her. And in that blessing, he indicates that the Ishmaelites are a people that will always be in conflict. And because 
Israel was in conflict with the Ishmaelites on a regular basis. That's why this is read back into that story, right? That this is just a people that God actually set apart as going to be people that were going to be in conflict. And so again, it recalls for us that God is God of all the world, and he doesn't just work through people who acknowledge him as God or through people who are his chosen people, right? He uses all people to bring about his purposes. And as the commentary for today notes, um, you don't have to be Isaac or Jewish to have God with you, turning you into a great nation. You can be Ishmael or Arab, right? And so it... it, uh, encourages us to continue to look for places of commonality instead of places of division among the peoples of the world, because all the peoples of the world are God's people, right? So, okay, thoughts, questions there before we get to that last little bit about him haggling with Abimelech again and them working out their stuff, yeah. Well, God had that to say about a lot of people, right? So if you get to, y'all, you'll get there at the end. When you get to the end and you've got um, Jacob, who's, uh, who's also now known as Israel, and he is giving his blessing on his sons as he's about to die, all, he, these are his own sons. And he's saying, you're going to be kind of like this and you're going to be kind of like this. And it's not all complimentary. And it, uh, very similar things are said there. So we can't pull the Ishmaelites out and say, oh, God said they're going to be conflict people. Look at how they still are. No, he said that about a lot of us too, inside baseball, right? And, and so what's our excuse for, right? I mean, and so are all people in conflict? And so do we go back to the Babel story and say that it's always this struggle about are all, all of us equally submitting to God versus not? And when we don't, we end up getting out of right relationship with one another and la, 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 right? That's a, th- I mean, we can't just say it's just them, it's all of us. Um, yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Okay, let's do this last passage. So, this is basically 22 to the end. And it go, I'm not even gonna read it all to you, but it's at that time, Abimelech, da-da-da. So, Abraham comes, hey, Abraham comes and said, hey, do you realize that they're kind of doing this with the well? And Abimelech says, hey, I don't know nothing about the well. No one's told me anything. And he goes, okay. Abraham's like, okay, well, just be a witness to me. I'm going to dig a well here, and I'm going to be using this well, and let's make a pact, and we're all going to get along, right? And we're going to kind of work out our stuff here and stuff. So that, that's basically what happens here. So because they're talking about the land south of Beersheba, and because just in our story previously, we're told that Hagar and Ishmael go out near Bathsheba as well. Since, Be- since Beersheba's showing up a lot in here, I thought I'd tell you about that. So it's a desert area. Um, it's not, not at this time, but it will become the place where the Philistines live. And so again, they're kind of reading back into this, who will have a lot of interaction with Israel. And so Abraham digs a well, and he plants a tree, and he makes a peace covenant with his neighbors here again. And so again, this is kind of a companion story to Abraham's border issue with Lot and his people. So remember when him and Lot sent out, and they 
they, they um, planted themselves and they started growing. Their families grew and their livestock grew and everything. And they started running into each other. And him and Lot got together. And Abraham kind of said, what, what part do you want? You take whatever part you want and I'll take the other part, right? And they kind of work out their differences and go, which is to Abraham's credit. Although Lot was family, so you work a little harder to get that. But here the same thing. Abraham comes and he goes, we kind of got this well issue over here and your people are kind of roughing up my people and it's not good. So let's work something out. So he digs another well, makes sure everybody knows it's his well, and they kind of make a pact and move on, right? And so we're told Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And so I just thought it was this beautiful sacramental thing. So we talk about sacraments here, how we use water and wine um, and oil and things to um, that are part of the created order that God uses as instruments of his grace um, to feed us, to make himself known to us, to become part of us, right? And so I love this, that he plants a tamarisk tree as a, as a homage to God. Yes, I mean, it's a beautiful thing that you take cre something of creation and offer it up to God like that, right? And so Beersheba, I'm going to close by saying, has um, significance for all of our patriarchs. Abraham, as above, um, planted the tree and worked out his deal with uh, Abimelech. Later, Isaac will give it the same name when he reopens the well. So under Isaac, what we're going to see is the well has been lidded, and then Isaac's going to reopen it, and he calls it again Beersheba there. It's listed as the desert area where Hagar went with Ishmael as they were cast out, which we just said. And then what happens is when, as we go through scripture, you're going to hear the phrase, especially in Psalms, um, from Dan to Beersheba. So that's kind of a, so that would be like us saying from California to New York, right? From LA to New York or something. That's what it would be. It would be um, delineating borders. And so Dan is the very northernmost part of the tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel of Israel. And Beersheba is the southern point. And so when they're talking about that, that's kind of what they're saying. It came to mean the whole of the promised land when they said from Dan to Beersheba. Okay. That is Hagar and Ishmael. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? It's messy, right? Our story is messy. Thanks be to God. It keeps us humble. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great being with you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>